Welcome back to Crazy Faith Talk. I'm Sarah. I'm Erica. And I'm Steve. And so, friends, we are in episode three of a uh, new series for the new year on justice and what biblical justice looks like. So far, we've looked at just like a general definition of justice and biblical justice. We have looked at the Torah, which is the first five books of the Old Testament. And so today we're jumping into the prophets, which have a lot to say about justice. So, Steve, where are we headed in? In the prophets right now. Well, I, by the end of our conversation, we'll probably spend a little bit of time in a bunch of the prophets. But maybe it's worth us, like before we turn to a book, thinking about historical setting. Like okay. a lot of us probably have a sense of, uh, even if all you've ever seen are Bible movies, is a rough sense of at some point there were people who were enslaved. They're set free. They wander in the wilderness and they get to a land that then they mm-hmm. settle. And then we get kind of fuzzy. Um, and eventually you get a period where there is either one king or the kingdom splits and there's a north and a south, but it's as settled as Israel or then when it splits Israel and Judah ever are. It's the closest to sort of like a a normal way of life where there's relative stability in government and they have institutions and marketplaces and businesses and just do regular life. Mm -hmm. And in the midst of that, you get voices who sort of emerge and Sometimes they critique what's going on in the world around them, like present day in their present day, and say things like, hey, king, you're being a crook, or hey, businesses, you're cheating people, or things like that. And sometimes they talk about what God's going to do off in the future. We tend to focus on that off in the future part because it's interesting and cool, and often we have Jesus moments. So when we think of the prophets, we often go, oh, the people who predicted Jesus, and that's all they're good for. Um, But if you would have asked any of those self-appointed often people, like Amos and uh, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel, who didn't have official, usually didn't have official religious institutional credentials, but had the sense of being called by God to speak, they wouldn't have seen it as my job is just to predict messiahs. They would have said, I'm here to speak what God's word is for my time and as well as what God's going to do in the future and how those overlap and intertwine. the the predicting the future stuff becomes more and more pressing as the shadow of exile got more and more pressing and looming and they had to say things like what are we going to do on the other side of exile will God be with us what will we do but in the midst of regular ordinary life the prophets sort of emerge as this minority report kind of voice that um, the the kings had like official, you know, the ancient version of cable news that would be like, here's the official position of the government on this. Here's the news. Here's 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 how things are. And the prophets sort of arise as this, eh, wait a second, God has something else to say. And so all these uh, voices that we have in a, the middle chunk of our Old Testament, the, or the last part of our Old Testament, the, the prophets, um, are voices like that who say things often sort of counter to the official word of the day. Sometimes they seem to be running right in line with it, the official word coming from the palace was, but usually then it was over against whatever big empire was out there. So there's always kind of this voice of like, I don't know, like, like uh, of, of being the sort of counter voice or the, the, the countercultural kind of voice. Sometimes it was them against the king in the palace or it was them and the king against the Babylonians or the Assyrians, but it was always this, yeah, but there's something else God has to say kind of a voice. Because the kings of this time, like we... I think most of us probably know King David mm-hmm. and one of the better kings of Israel. But after King David, I mean, we get this constant up and down of good king, bad king, good king, bad king. And it's not always just back and forth. Sometimes it's back king, bad king, bad king. Eventually a good <clears throat> king or good-ish king comes forward. Yeah. And so that's why we need these prophets to say, you know what, the king is saying this, but really 
that's going completely against what God is yeah. asking you and has told you to do as Israel. And now let's try to set you on the right path. Yeah. And, and one of the difficulties is how do you judge or determine how, what are the criteria you decide who's mm-hmm. a good or a bad king? Because one of the things that I think is most fascinating, at least to me, it was, it was like this eye opening moment that some of the most urgent prophetic voices didn't live in desperate economic times, but in times when things were booming and they said things like, even yeah. even when everybody else is like, everything's going to be great forever, the markets will always climb, will always be rich, said things like, no, the way you're treating people is going to bring disaster. This isn't going to be good. Mm-hmm. And who saw that coming disaster as like, God's going to let this happen because God needs to shake things up because the way you're treating people, the way you're treating each other is unacceptable. So, for example, like a quintessential case study in the, the prophets is Amos in my mind. And Amos is um, an interesting story because he he is originally from a city in the southern kingdom, this little village called Tekoa in Judah. And he gets called, not like an official like institutional church calls him to be the pastor somewhere. He just like gets this sort of impulse from God. You're supposed to go into the next kingdom up, the, into the kingdom of Israel, and go to the powerful places, the official capital and religious centers, and tell them that God's going to knock it all down because... Um, they're not taking care of the poor and they're not taking care of each other and they're cheating each other. But everything is going great economy-wise and military-wise. All those things are going great. And yet the prophets say, just because it looks like things are prosperous, something can still be rotten in Denmark, so to speak. Um, And that's often one of the challenges is that the official word from the palace is, things are going great because we've got a big army or things are going great because we're all rich or things are going great because the stock market or whatever the ancient Israelite equivalent of the stock market is. And the prophets would be like, wait a second, what about the homeless people down the street? Or wait a second, what about the number of people who are getting cheated? That's not okay. And you can't build a system on cheating people and stepping on people and leaving homeless people. So the prophets are this sort of countercultural voice about what makes for a good king or a good society or not. Because of, you know, you keep saying things are going great. At least they look like it. Right. They're going great for the upper class. Right, right, right. But you've got this whole, I mean, the upper class, much like it is today, is maybe the top 10% of people and everybody else is, you know, mm-hmm, living, mm-hmm. you know, there, there's homelessness and there's poverty and there's all these other things. So for the king and his king, you know, in the palace in the surrounding city, right? yeah, things look great. But then when you get out into the country side of Israel, sure. things aren't looking so good. Sure. And it's not just about that we don't have enough money, but like the, one of the things that, that, that Amos and other voices would say is like when people are being cheated or defrauded or when people were doing work and not being paid enough to feed their families or there's a recurring image that seems foreign to our ears, but like when somebody would go into debt or need a, a short, small loan or something like that and as collateral, the creditor, the basically like the bank today, the creditor would take Whatever their clothes are. I mean, you're talking about an era where people own, like, two sets of clothes, and the creditors are like, well, I'm going to steal your one coat. And the prophets are like, you can't do that to people. I mean, like, it's not even about whether you're allowed to. That's not humane. And the prophets would say things like, that's not justice. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is where justice comes into this conversation, is that the, the prophets aren't just people who predict weird, strange things in the future, although we sometimes get some of that, like, Daniel, I'm looking at you. <laughs> um, <laughs> but... Um, the prophets also have a way of reading 
the headlines of their day basically and saying like this isn't the kind of community God called us to be God wants us to be and they were able to say that in part because they aren't wedded to the palaces and they aren't they aren't they aren't an official uh, broadcasting arm of the royal you know household so they don't have to do what the king says or they don't have to repeat what the king says they can say even if it's at their own risk this isn't acceptable or God's going to smack this down or God's going to let it implode on its own strength or something um so so like that that's maybe a, a place to start the conversation that the prophets rise and in different moments in their in their thus says the lord kind of speeches would often touch on things they saw that were amiss or wrong or unjust about the world around them um what are the kinds of things that seem to matter to the the prophets when they finally get around to this kind of conversation what things are are important for us to lift up if our conversation is about what does what does justice look like what do the prophets have to say well care for for the poor and the widowed and Mm -hmm. the lowly like the you know the um what we were today considering the lower class and those under the poverty line like there's just so much that like you said, you know, uh, the creditors are taking their their one and only coat. So mm-hmm. when it gets cold at the desert at night, mm-hmm. then you know, they have no way to keep warm because they only have one coat. Yeah. And there's just so much of that throughout. Uh, the, just the taking advantage of folks that don't already don't have enough mm-hmm. and giving them even less. So th- this is a place where I think it's a, it's really interesting and maybe an important point that our our maybe modern day conversations about justice are sometimes lacking. We we said in an earlier episode that. Uh, when when people hear the word justice, quite often we jump to, oh, criminal justice, that's about punishing people who do wrong things. And yeah, that's a part of it. We even spent part of our conversation earlier about um, the, the law of retaliation and sort of the when somebody hurts you, here's how much revenge you're allowed to take before it becomes yeah. you know too much. Or here's how you're allowed to extract a certain amount of punishment uh, for wrongdoing. And th- there's a need for that. There's a need for so that we don't end up with you know warlords being allowed to pillage or steal or kill people. They need to have that kind order but the prophets seem to be talking about justice and they do use the word justice they don't call it charity uh they see this as no the the right ordering of things the right balance and relationships is we need to be able to take care of people among us um and they didn't invent that idea really that comes from the idea in the torah that you're all supposed to take care of your neighbor i mean the 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 central command that Jesus uh, quotes, love your neighbor as yourself, uh, comes right out of Leviticus 19. It's right in the midst of law. And love isn't like an emotional kind of a, you feel a certain way when your neighbor walks into the room, but like it's about take care of them, meet their needs and take care of one another. We're supposed to do this for one another. So when the prophets would see things like, wow, there's people who live in these giant walled palaces and are drinking bowls full of wine and saying life is great. Meanwhile, outside their gate, there are people who are starving and in need. The prophets say, that's not right relationship. In, in the same vein, um, the prophets also speak about caring for the alien among you. Yeah. So, you know, the stranger, the those who are not, like, natural-born citizens, how are you supposed to care for them? Ezekiel, I believe, is the one who even says, treat the aliens as if they were citizens of Israel, that they shall inherit right along inside side you. So, like... How you care for the stranger among you mm-hmm. is also important to 
the prophets. That's a word that it's worth spending a moment on, too, because you said stranger, and often that's how our translations will say it, but the word stranger has the force, not just like like we teach our children, don't talk to strangers to someone I don't know, but the word has the sense of someone who is not of the people of Israel. In other words, a foreigner. Yeah, right? somebody who's strange. Yeah, yeah. And so when the the both the Torah and the prophets will say things like, and it's usually, it's often expressed as those three together, the widow, the orphan, and the foreigner, the widow, often, and the mm. stranger. It's meant to be these are people who don't have an automatic safety net of immediate family who'd be taking care of them because either if it's parents or a spouse or a, you know, a wider family, if you're away from that support network, the whole community of Israel or of Judah were supposed to then step in and care for the needs of those people and to treat them, like you say, as though... The, now, they don't have quite the same like rigorous amount of paperwork about who counts as a citizen or not, but they did have this sense of you could trace your bloodline and you could trace your ethnicity. And if you, you know, if so you'd be able to say, yeah, I was a, I was a, of the tribe of such and such, I'm an Israelite. And if you weren't one of those, you're a foreigner, you're an outsider. And yet the writers of scripture, the, the, the prophets say things like treat the foreigner, treat the stranger like one of the members of the tribe of Israel. Now, in part, knowing, too, that they weren't necessarily going to be able to inherit land the way that uh, citizens of Israel were going to, right? We talked before about how the old rules of Jubilee were supposed to, the land was supposed to revert to the original tribal owners, which meant that if you were a foreigner, you might be able to buy land for a season, but eventually it would go back, in theory, if they'd ever done Jubilee. But there's, there's a vulnerability, there is a verse, though, in Ezekiel, Ezekiel 47, verse 22. Okay. You shall allot it as an inheritance for yourself and for the oh. aliens who reside among you and have begotten children among you. So, they shall be to you as citizens of Israel. With you, they shall be allotted an inheritance among the tribes of Israel. That's an important point because it seems like that's a move. That's like moving beyond where the Torah was. Like the Torah doesn't envision that. And here's Ezekiel. And like this is a little bit scary territory for us because this means Ezekiel is going, yeah, I know what the Torah says. And now God is saying you're supposed to include the alien and give them an allotment as though they were your own citizens. That's it's it's sometimes we're scared of noticing that progression the way that the Bible does have progression from. Yep, this is how the Torah says it. And then as the situation changes, Ezekiel says this. And he's well aware. It's not like Ezekiel was like, oh, I didn't realize that the Torah had different rules, mm-hmm. he's well aware and is convinced God is now speaking a new thing. Yeah, that's why the Sadducees and the Pharisees don't always see eye to eye, because right. the Sadducees just have the Torah, whereas the Pharisees have more scripture, or, like, they hold more of these books as scripture, so they can see right. progression in ways that the Sadducees do not. Right, right, right. And it makes sense because when the Torah is originally written, I mean, it's written for the people of Israel, mm-hmm. you know, and it only the people of Israel. But as Israel becomes this kingdom, you know, foreigners are going to start moving into their land, and so it just makes sense that, you know, as these people see this, this is a place of refuge, mm-hmm. where Israel was originally the foreigners in the land, you know, why not include them, yeah. you know, in, into this? And that's what I think where Israel was getting that from is like. Okay, these people will become a part of us. Yeah, they can't trace their lineage back to Abraham like we can, but they married into us. They are now part of our family. It's like in-laws, you know, any yeah. type of in-laws. They're part of the family now, even yeah. though they're not blood-related. It's interesting, too. Ezekiel, I'm thinking, too, is is an interesting voice among the prophets, too, because when he... Well, in a lot, a lots of ways. That's a conversation <laughs> for another day. But on this point, because um, if I'm remembering right... 
when Ezekiel looks back and tells the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, he says the reason Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed uh, is that they didn't take care of the poor and the foreigners. And like, and like, he's well aware of the other stories that float around about Lot and his family and the angels and all that. But like, when he looks back, he says, you know what Sodom's sin was? They didn't take care of the poor and they didn't take care of the foreigners in their midst. Like, again, that's a really surprising move where you might expect someone to go, Ezekiel, you're wrong. That's not how the story in Genesis goes. You go, I know this. And here's what I'm telling you is a bigger deal to God. That's surprising. Um, but again, it's important to see that the prophets understand that part of their their role is not to just recite earlier Bible verses at people, but to say, here's what God has to say in this moment in this set of circumstances. So um, uh, sometimes the prophets will make that kind of move and they'll talk about the those who are most vulnerable and often in that sort of triangle that were that that threefold the widow the orphan and the foreigner the widow and the orphan and the stranger um sometimes they'll they'll criticize whole systems of, of ways people are living um like amos is one he, he has like almost nothing good to say about <laughs> the kingdom of of israel um and it, it in a way comes from comes from a place of love because i think amos like all the prophets have the sense of god envisioned so much better for you and you all have settled for something so much worse um but he'll say things like you know um and it seems like he's taking snapshots from real lived life like there are people who were upset when they had to close business for the sabbath because they couldn't make more money on that mm-hmm. day or they were selling inferior products and trying to get away with it or they were cheating balances and remembering that like people don't use cash registers back in ancient 8th century uh bc Israel, they're using weights and measures of like precious metals and so many units of, of wheat or grain or whatever. And so when when um, Amos will say things like, you who are making the ephah small and the shekel great, these are people who are trying to cheat others by you know false balances. And this is an era where like, we found different ways to cheat people in our era, but that's still an issue is that we, we have the, the how do you run businesses that are just toward people that aren't criminal, that aren't cheating people. And to see that as a matter of stealing or wrongful taking things from people as well. We have a way of treating stealing like it's just, it's only stealing if I break in a window or break in your door and take stuff out of your house. But the biblical writers see, no, if I'm if I'm cheating you out of something, that's a form of stealing as well. And that's also what God has said we're not supposed to do to each other. That it's, again, it's about right relationship. Amos, again, I'm, I'm sort of, he's, he's in my mind right now, but he, he also gives snapshots that are not terribly flattering of the the well-to-do people in ancient Israel. He's the one who gives us images. He sometimes calls the the upper crust uh leaders and um the like the the elite couples in Israel as the cows of Bashan. Like he like he, you know like you cows um and and he, he imagines them lounging around on their couches saying bring me something to drink and he just he's merciless about them. Mm-hmm. And and not not it's not envy I don't think. He's just got this sense of like this this isn't what God intended for us. We're not. It's not supposed to be that you can be so insulated from the needs of others because you've got so much stuff and so much luxury that you don't have to care about other people. He sees that as part of the problem. So he's not anti-couch and he's not anti-drinking wine either. He's more like, if, if your way of dealing with the problems outside your door is to just shut the door and not look there, that doesn't solve it. That's ignoring it. And that's one of the things that the the... Most well-to-do in ancient Israel, they could afford it. They had lots of ways to distract themselves. Um, so that's, that seems to be an important piece of justice for prophets like uh, Amos. Um, maybe we want to take a look at a couple other important passages where this, this idea of what justice looks like in regular lived life. Um, and maybe we might want to turn to, uh, I'm thinking Isaiah 58 might be a place to go. Uh, what are things you want to lift up, uh, Erica? 
So Isaiah 58 is about fasting and, and what kind of fast that God calls us to. And, and we see this throughout. You know, God calls uh, people to fasting. And this is a passage we'll often see on Ash Wednesday. Um, but these folks have made fasting into something um, basically to look pious rather than to be actually pious. You know, they're, they're using it. Um, they're fighting over how to do it and, and what it means. And uh, picking up in verse 6, God says uh, through Isaiah, is, this, is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of injustice, to undo the thongs of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover them and not to hide yourself from your own kin? So rather than like fasting um, just, you know, to, to fill the hunger pains, like he wants people to be fasting, you know, you don't eat so then you can feed other people. And it seems to me like the, Isaiah may be even making a further move saying, I really don't care about whether you eat or not. It's not about stopping eating. It was, yeah. here's what I'm really interested in. And it seems like the prophets regularly have a way of like cutting apart the institutional religion of their day mm-hmm. because it had gotten kind of co-opted. Like it doesn't matter how we treat our neighbor as long as we do our religion right. And so whether it's offering sacrifices or did we pray the right prayers or did we uh, fast enough and they'll, and sometimes the prophets will say, we're fasting or the, the, the prophets will like quote the people and say god we're fasting how come you're not noticing and isaiah will be like i don't care about you not eating that doesn't impress me and if you were doing it to impress me that's that's a lost cause you didn't need to impress me if you want to do the things i care about and then let the oppressed go free and take care of the homeless poor and and welcome the stranger into your house but it's it's uh like a skewering of the way institutional religion looked in ancient israel i mean it seems like isaiah is saying you know on behalf of God, I don't care how religious you are yeah. when you're, when your religiosity causes you to oppress others, yeah. then that's not the religion that I, that I taught you. That's not how I taught you to, to worship me. Yeah. And so I'm going to call that out because I taught you, but to worship me by feeding the hungry mm-hmm. and taking care of the, the widow, the orphan and the stranger, uh, the year of Jubilee, you know, I, I keep coming, I keep thinking back to that and how, mm-hmm. Things are supposed to be equally distributed, and we don't have a whole lot of evidence of Israel ever practicing that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's what the prophets are coming after. You know, you've you've uh, cured all this um, wealth for yourself over the years because you've not practiced jubilee, you've not practiced the Sabbath year yeah. that leads up to the jubilee, and so now you have all this wealth. And now, now your neighbor has nothing. Yeah, and so you need to make sure that you are dispersing that back out into the community. Because that's what God wants you to do. There are places early in Isaiah's book, too, where he'll say things like speaking on behalf of God that'll be like, I hate your solemn assemblies. I don't care. And like, and mm-hmm. so like, it's basically God saying, I hate going to church, uh, which is a weird thing <laughs> to hear God say. And God says like, because you're treating that like as long as we get the ritual right, as long as we did our prayers right or sang the right notes, that buys you off. God now God doesn't care about how I run my business or how I treat other people or how I have regard for those who are most in need. And uh, Amos gets even more colorful. He pictures God like putting stuff in in the divine ears so we won't hear mm-hmm. the the people. And God's like, I won't listen to your prayers. I won't listen to your songs. Um, and it's interesting how they the the prophets will often take like the central pieces of Israel's ancient worship life fasting and prayer and even sacrifice and they'll sometimes go god did not need any of these things even though the torah does command things like praying and fasting and sacrifice and the prophets will say things like god never needed to be fed by your sacrifices so whatever the sacrifices meant please don't think you're buying god off or feeding god or something like that 
I mean, it seems like, um, you know, these folks, they have 168 hours in the week. And they, you know, if they go to the synagogue for that one hour on, on the Sabbath. <laughs> right, right. It doesn't matter, you know, how they spend the other 178 hours during the week. Right, right, They've right. done their religious thing. Right. And God's like, no, 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 no. If you're going to follow me, you're going to follow me with everything. Right, right, right. And that the, the outside rituals that we use are never an, a replacement for how we treat one another. Mm-hmm. And that the prophets seem to think, again, I, th- I think this goes back to where we started our whole conversation, that in the beginning, in the beginning of the Bible story, justice is not a punishment for wrongdoing, it's about right relationship. Mm-hmm. And the prophets are like, if you're using your religiosity as a cover for, now I don't have to treat my neighbor right, you've misunderstood what the point of religion was, and you've missed the point of what justice is all about. So that when the prophets skewer the religion of their day, it's not because they hate a god or because they hate religion. It's more this sense of, like, this wasn't what it was about. It was always meant to be about right relationship all around between us and God, us and neighbor, us and creation, and... Here, look, it, religion has become a tool to cover all the ways we're being rotten to each other. Um, another passage that seems pertinent for us to raise is one that uh, is probably pretty well known. It comes from Micah, the, the book of Micah, and it's in the sixth chapter. Um, and it's sort of this the, a little uh, speech that starts out where Micah like uh, imagines that he's like the prosecutor prosecuting attorney for God, accusing the people of not living up to what God had called them to, to do and to be. And he sort of imagines that he's in a divine courtroom and says, you know, what what has God you know done wrong or what has God not done for you that you're being such rotten covenant partners? And then the conversation turns in about Micah 6 verse 6 maybe. Um, and he sort of be, asks a set of rhetorical questions, right? He sort of says, uh, okay, what is it that God ever wanted from us in the first place? And he offers several uh, possibilities. Am I supposed to give you uh, burnt offerings and sacrifices? Am I supposed to give you grain from my fields or wine? And then he even dares to suggest, should I offer my children? Should I offer human sacrifices? Is that what you want? And the voice that th- that God offers comes back with these sort of familiar words. Do you have them somewhere around? I do. Okay. He has told you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. So Micah seems to be saying, like, in a way very much like what Jesus would do, that, like, all of what the Torah, all of what the commandments are really about come down to doing justice and loving kindness or practicing the Hebrew concept of chesed um, and walking humbly with God. That, like, it's really always been about that all along. And, again, that's uncomfortable if you're the official institutional religious person who's like, no, but we need to have sacrifices, and no, we need to have incense and candles, and here's the prophet going, those are window dressing. What God has really been after all along was how do we treat each other, and that's what justice is about. Yeah, how do we treat each other, and how do we treat God? Yeah. That, you know, which, again, I think this is a little preview of, I'm sure, a conversation we're having going to have next week. <gasps> um, but that... You know, when somebody asks Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus answered, you know, to love God. And then the second is like it, to love your neighbor. And that is, you know, basically the Ten Commandments boiled down. Yeah. You know, love God, love neighbor, treat them good, treat them well. And interestingly to me, like, again, we'll get into this maybe more in depth, but like, the person asked Jesus for one, and Jesus 
like, is well aware of what he's been asked, and he gives two without batting eyes. Like, well, you can't really separate these. These are two sides of the same coin. Love God and love neighbor. And in that sense, Jesus isn't inventing that idea out of whole cloth. Here's Micah has done the same thing, where he sees love of God and love of neighbor are bound up with each other. To do justice is to be crude about a horizontal thing. How do I relate to one another, other other people? And uh, even practicing mercy or showing kindness is me to other people. And to walk humbly with God, that's a me and God thing. Um, but the Micah sees all those are all connected, but, but that that's all God has ever intended all along for us. Yep, all the way back to the Ten Commandments. Right, and that even the Ten Commandments sort of harken back to, uh, like we said in our opening episode in this series, that the vision we get in the beginning of creation is everything in right relationship, that human beings are in right relationship with each other, we're not killing each other, and we're in right relationship with creation, we're not destroying it, we're, ta- we're living you know, in balance, um, and we're in right relationship with God and accepting what our role is as caretakers and not making ourselves into God, but that doesn't last long in that storytelling, but that, again, justice isn't just a certain amount of punishment for people who did the wrong thing, but there's a longing for things to be putting, uh, things to be put right, I guess, you know? Um, in, in a way, like, all of this kind of circles around um, the prophets seeing the world around them and saying, we aren't doing what God intended, and there's going to be consequences for that. So there, there is sort of an edge of judgment sometimes from the prophets. But they also sometimes have a word of hope of God is going to do a new thing where justice is done at last. So, like, one place that comes to my mind that seems important is uh, Isaiah 61. These are words that Jesus will later borrow, let's say, uh, in what Luke gives us as his first sermon uh, in Luke's gospel. Um, and... Uh, the, the the prophet says in Isaiah 61, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the oppressed, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, release to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's as much as Jesus quotes in, in Luke chapter 4. But again, this seems to be very much sort of an idea of this is what justice looks like. So it's release for those who are oppressed or those who are captive um, and good news for those who are poor, those who are oppressed. Um, and that year of the Lord's favor, that's jubilee language like you were mentioning earlier erica so it's this idea of um the not just you're doing it wrong now and there's going to be judgment but this vision of in the future god this is what god is declaring is going to happen or this is what god has sent me to announce um and that's good news for the people who are stepped on or who are brokenhearted or who are captive um so that the the prophet's Sometimes they get a reputation for just being doom and gloom, and sometimes they have to be. But some, but sometimes we forget there's this deep word of hope they have that is also grounded in justice, too. And that if our picture of justice is only, it's about punishing people who did wrong things, that's always going to sound negative. But the prophets see justice as a restoration of things in into right relationship again. Well, and if we're in that, if we're doing justice, as Micah calls us to do, Mm-hmm. Then the the other side of justice, you know, punishment for criminal offenses, I would think that, you know, if everybody is living up to that doing justice, then the other one is going to slowly dissipate. Mm -hmm. And again, I think like even our sense of criminal justice the in in the biggest picture is about love for the neighbor who's the victim right if somebody has stolen my the the money i was going to use to feed my kids yeah i should be able to get that money back so i can feed my kids again so that even the idea of we need order in a society so that people are not allowed to run roughshod and take people's stuff that's not being harsh or mean or cruel it's a question of how do we make sure everybody's able to feed their kids how's everybody able to take care of the the needs under their roof and that means um, there's there's law and order. There's there's uh, consequences when when somebody breaks those relationships. But also that um, 
when somebody is in that deep position of need that how do we help take care of them? Um, because sometimes the reason somebody's hungry is not that someone broke into my house and stole it. Sometimes it's there's a famine and there's no food around in my field, but you have abundance. Oh, and we can share. Or sometimes the reason that uh, I'm running low in is I lost my job and the factory closed or the company closed and what who's going to help take care of my needs? And that's a part of what justice looks like for the profits as well. Um, I guess I want to say, maybe it's obvious, but um, just to have said it out loud, in this respect, the prophets aren't only talking about things that happened a thousand years ago. Um, And that's maybe uncomfortable because uh, it is easy for us to have a historical Bible study and say, yeah, those people a long time ago, they got it so wrong. And then we pat ourselves on the back and go, and we've got it all figured out. Now we know so much better. And the haunting thing about the the scriptures, if we really believe it's this living voice of God's word, is it keeps poking at us. And even though there are a lot of ways our culture is different than ancient Israel, and we don't do financial transactions with scales anymore. Um, There are lots of ways we need to hear those words about not cheating each other and that cheating, yep, that's a kind of stealing and taking advantage of people or that it's just not okay if I'm insulated with so much abundance that I don't even pay attention to the people who are in need around me or halfway around the world that uh, that's a part of what God's vision of justice is, not just punishing people who broke a rule. So... We've kind of already begun to stick our toe in the water of Jesus stuff, so preview of coming attractions. We hope you'll join us next time when we're going to make the, the cross the big divide into the New Testament and take a look at what Jesus has to say in some important sayings of his about justice, too. So thanks for listening, everybody. See you. Bye.